Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, we are here. It is August the 4th, um, Thursday, August the 4th, late evening here, dog days of summer. Not really sure how it's August, to be honest, uh, because summer is just cruising, cruising right on by. But um, what are we talking about this week? Yeah, we are really excited this week. The uh, The theme of the episode is about liberty, and we figured we got one of the foremost experts on liberty in the country. We're going to be joined by the executive director of the organization People for Liberty, Dan Fishman. Uh, we'll get into this more in the interview, but I first met Dan back in 2018 when he was running as a Libertarian Party candidate for the Auditor of Massachusetts he then went on to become the executive director of the Libertarian Party and now is the executive director of the People for Liberty movement, uh, the president of which uh, is Joe Jorgensen, who just uh, recently ran for president as the Libertarian Party candidate in 2020. So Dan, like I said, is one of the foremost experts on the liberty movement in the United States and I couldn't be more grateful that he's spending some time with us tonight. It, it, honestly, it continues our great run of guests. We had Michaela and Jessica were wonderful talking about abortion. And then we had Jamie Karchik on two weeks ago talking about the hidden history of, of DC, of gay Washington. And now to have Dan on, it's we feel very lucky that people come and, and want to have these conversations with us. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely a treat. Another high profile guest you keep landing here as <laughs> producer and, and booking agent Kelly. Yeah. We wear many hats in this podcast. <laughs> it's only two of us. We have to wear all the hats. But I you know what, Ricky, I feel like libertarians would understand that as as like a grassroots bootstraps type movement. Libertarians should empathize with a podcast in which we do all of the recording, the booking, the editing, the promotion. So we do what we can. Uh, before we get into the interview with Dan, just remind everyone that this podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. You know, if you've been listening for a while, that they've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. If you're in Boston, you can go give them a look. If you are not in Boston, you can check them out online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Uh, that's Cannon with two N's. Uh, you can check them out on Instagram. Uh, Ricky, got a question for you. No, how did no. <laughs> you got the one last week? So we'll see. We'll see how this one goes. How do trees get online? Whoa! Riddle me that. Um, I don't know. I don't know, Brendan. How do they get online? The same way that humans do. They just log in. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> and and on that note, <laughs> let's get into Dan's interview. All right, so we are now thrilled to welcome Dan Fishman to the program. 
I first met Dan back in 2018, my year of campaigning here in Massachusetts. Dan at the time was running for the statewide office of auditor, and we'll talk about that um, shortly. But Dan, since 2018, after an unfortunately unsuccessful campaign for the both of us here in Massachusetts, uh, Dan has gone on to bigger things, certainly we'll discuss bigger and better, perhaps. Uh, But he went on to become the executive director of the Libertarian Party down in in D.C. for a couple of years, where we'll get into this more specifically, but where he was one of the people in charge of getting ballot access to uh, all 50 states for um, Joe Jorgensen, who was running for president, who I actually voted for. Uh, And yeah, I, I, I did both Jorgensen and um, Gary Johnson. So I'm, I'm two for two. Awesome. Uh, yes. But uh, after since leaving his post as the executive director of the Libertarian Party, um, Dan now, now runs a nonprofit organization called the People for Liberty. People for Liberty is, is the name of it. He's the executive director, um, Joe Jorgensen, who ran, as I said, for president as the Libertarian Party candidate, um, is also uh, kind of the 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 co-director of people for liberty so a lot to get into we're going to talk libertarianism we're going to talk the liberty movement we're going to talk how that movement fits into american politics today uh, what what the goals of the movement are so uh, we're really excited for the conversation dan thanks so much for for taking some time and talking with us tonight Uh, it's a pleasure i'm so thrilled that uh you know we have maintained this connection uh in spite of you know slightly disparate political views over the years because I think that it's only through maintaining connections like this with people who can have intelligent conversations. That's our only chance to save the union. And that's something that is really important to me. Yeah, not to overstate it or anything, but we totally agree with that. Yep. All right. So like I said, I want to start with a little bit of background on you. Can you just talk to us about your background and what brought you to the Libertarian Party or the Liberty Movement in general? Uh, so I grew up uh, in an academic family. Uh, my father is a scientist. My mother is a librarian, but like an MLS librarian, not a, somebody who works in a library. Um, and she'd work in a library. But uh, we uh, traveled around a bit because my dad is a scientist. Uh, Massachusetts viewers will know Woods Hole, Massachusetts. I spent every summer of my life there. Uh, my dad did his research at MBL. Uh, but I grew up in Texas. Uh, and to this day, I self-identify as Texan uh, before I identify as Jewish or any of the other things. <laughs> that, like, that's what sticks with me. Yeah. Um, I uh, did my first undergraduate at the University of Texas. I uh, graduated degree in education. And uh, yeah, hook them. And uh, I taught uh, special ed for, uh, five, for seven years. Uh, five years in Texas and then two years in Massachusetts. I moved up to Massachusetts in 94 with a girl. Uh, and then of course that immediately didn't work out. Um, but, uh, it was nice because, uh, I then met a woman. I thought we were gonna get married and have kids. And, uh, as misogynistic as it might be, I thought me, man must provide for family. Can't happen on a teacher's salary. So I went back to school and got a computer science degree. Mid nineties was not the worst time in the world to get a computer science degree. Uh, I lucked into a job with a company called anyday.com. Uh, if you believe in patents, we invented the online calendar. Uh, we then got bought by Palm in 2000. Uh, and then the dot-com crash happened. Uh, I went to go work for Mass General. Uh, I wrote their distance learning software package. 
Um, and I was there until uh, at one point my wife was looking through Craigslist and she saw an ad that said, looking for software architect with background in special education. She's like, I don't know why they didn't just put your name on the ad. So I went to work for a company called Eastbed up in uh, Andover. Uh, that was 2010. Uh, and I was very happy there. It was a great job. Uh, very comfortable life. But in 2011, Barack Obama signed the National Defense Authorization Act, which uh, suspended habeas corpus, allowed them to arrest you under suspicion of terrorism and hold you without the right to an attorney, without the right to a speedy trial. Uh, and that spoke to my family's personal history. Uh, my grandmother came over from Russia, actually from Ukraine, um, because her father had been disappeared by the police. They came home one day and he was gone. The neighbor said the police took him. They went to the police station. We don't know where he is. Her mother said it's not safe. They came to Massachusetts, uh, ended up in Lynn. And, uh, and so that's my family's personal story is that the police shouldn't have the authority to just disappear you. And so, you know, as, as sensitive as I am to, you know, there are people out there who mean the America ill. It doesn't mean that you get to arrest Americans and interrogate them with in violation of the constitution. So I decided to run for office. Uh, I thought I can speak to these issues well and hopefully uh, with some eloquence. So I jumped into the race in Massachusetts six. Uh, at the time it was John Tierney against John to say John Tierney was an eight term congressman at the time. I'm uh, sorry, Richard to say, Richard to say was 20 years in the Massachusetts state house, including 10 years as a Senate minority leader. Um, the Republicans thought they were going to win. Uh, people who know Massachusetts politics, uh, not counting Scott Brown, right? Special election, uh, not counting that election. It's been since 1994 that a uh, Republican has won a federal seat in Massachusetts. They thought to say good win. Uh, he had a tremendous hairline, uh, out married gay man, pretty liberal, uh, and, Massachusetts six has been R plus two in the last several congressional uh, last several gubernatorial elections. So here he is running and Tierney's running and I pop in. I've never run for anything before, but I am a firm libertarian. Uh, so the way things started off was the very first debate that they had was going to be uh, was John Tierney uh, at the Lynn senior center on Medicaid and Medicare. Uh, and Richard say, it's like, I'm not going, and that's just, that's a stacked deck. So they invited me to sort of legitimize it. I went and I'm sweating it, right? I'm a, I'm a software guy. What I know about Medicaid or Medicare. Um, but I got two weeks, so I'm studying, went down, talked to my parents who were down on the Cape who knew a lot about it because they're that age. Uh, we get there. And if you've ever been to a Massachusetts debate, right? The streets are packed with people with signs and they're yelling and stuff like that. Incredibly intimidating to walk into. And I get in there. Tierney comes up and he's tall. He's got to be like 6'2", six, 6'3". Six, <clears throat> Looks great. Hey, Dan, thanks so much for coming out and shaking hands. I'm, you know, incredibly nervous. We get there and we start talking. And five minutes into the debate, it becomes apparent I am the subject matter expert in the room. And it was just astonishing to me that the bar was that low. But uh, after that, to say, tried to do the same thing. Uh, he had a debate. Maria Stefanos hosted it on Fox. And uh, they put three chairs on stage. One was empty with a microphone on it for John Classic. Tierney. 
Yeah. And uh, so it was me and Richard say, and then they ask a question. They point at here. Chair, <laughs> and finally, at one point, Maria comes to me. And she's like, you know, Dan, you, uh, Richard say has got a website specifically attacking John Tierney. And John Tierney has a website attacking Richard say. How does it feel to you to be the odd man out? And I'm like, well, you know, one of the things about a third-party candidate is you got to do more. So I actually put up my own website attacking myself, fishmanfollies.com. Those pictures of me with no with uh, Derek Jeter, completely fake stuff like that. And fortunately, you know, I'm in tech, so my tech team is behind the scenes. They got the domain name within five minutes, and within an hour, there's a basic website up. Uh, and so everybody laughed; they loved that. Then I got invited to every debate after that, uh, and you know, it's 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 fun to go back. I occasionally pull up the old articles uh, about the debate. Fishman won again. Let's go on to the other things. Uh, but everywhere I went. Uh, People came up to me and they're like, wow, you know, you really impressed me. I, I wasn't going to vote or I certainly, you know, to say certainly had problems with some conservatives who weren't going to vote for him because he was a gay man. Uh, <clears throat> John Tierney's wife had gone to jail for 30 days for money laundering um, right before the election. So they were both tainted candidates, but it was a credibly expensive campaign. They both spent about $4 million, which is, you know, unheard of for a congressional race, certainly back then. And in the end, I had uh, I got four and a half percent of the vote in a vote that was just in a thing where there's less than a half a percentage point. Uh, Seventeen thousand votes for me. Uh, margin of victory was thirty five hundred. So I got the famous title of spoiler. Yeah. Uh, John Tierney stayed in office uh, then to be primaried out in 2014 by Seth Moulton. Uh, but libertarians around the country said, you know, Dan, we heard you. This is what you should be doing. Uh, you know, you're wasting your talents. Uh, as a software guy, uh, we'd like you to consider an enormous pay cut uh, and come and uh, get involved in politics. So, uh, I mean, I kept working as a software guy, but uh, I became the political director of the Libertarian Party of Massachusetts uh, in 2014. We tried to run more candidates for state house than the Republicans did. We felt too shy, but, uh, you know, it sort of points to the problems in Massachusetts that uh, right now, if... Uh, all the of all the candidates that uh, the Republicans are running for state house got elected, they still couldn't sustain a Charlie Baker veto. Um, they just don't run. It's a one party state. Um, so 2016, I'm getting back to doing, you know, doing things for the party. But then Bill Weld gets the nomination as the vice presidential candidate. He had sent me a nice handwritten letter after the 2012 campaign. Uh, and he asked me to get more involved. And uh, essentially, the campaign asked me to become the Northeast field director. And I said, this is dumb. I am a software guy, right? I can't plan press events. Uh, I can't uh, do the coordination that's involved, anything like that. And they're like, Dan, there are four people in the Libertarian Party who can do anything, and you're two of them. So we need you to, uh, so I refused the job twice. The third time, they threatened me with somebody else who I knew was an idiot taking over the job. And so I did it. My employer at the time was very generous, uh, let me essentially take a sabbatical. Uh, and so I went and worked on the campaign. Uh, obviously, Gary and Bill didn't win, but, uh, you know, they got some really good press. Uh, and they pointed out to me, actually, they made me very much firmer in my resolve, the inequity of running as a third party candidate. So if you want to get into the presidential debate, uh, just a little bit of history, presidential debates, since they've been on television, used to be run by the League of Women Voters. Uh, however, after 1988, uh, the Republicans and the Democrats were unhappy with the 
hard questions that the League of Women Voters asked during the debate. And they said, well, we're going to invent this thing called the Commission on Presidential Debates, and they're going to be in charge of the debate. Now, League of Women Voters, we'd like for you to still participate and sponsor it, but we're going to run it. And the League of Women Voters, they wrote a big note saying, no, we're not going to do it. It's a fraud being perpetrated. Uh, and the idea that bipartisan is the same as nonpartisan is ridiculous. So the next election comes around and Commission on Presidential Debates runs it, and they set a threshold of 5% to get into the uh, debates. Here comes Ross Perot at 7%, gets into the debate at 7%, ends up finishing up with 19% of the vote, uh, which goes to show how important being in the debate is. And there's one more example that I always use on that. Jesse Ventura was polling at 10% when they had him in the three-way debate for governor, and he won the election. Being in the presidential debate legitimizes you. So after Ross Perot scared him a little bit, they changed the standard to 15%. And you have to be 15%, and there are six polls that they look at. And the question they ask in the poll is, if the election were today, who would you vote for? Now, the problem is, is that everybody who says, I don't know, I'm undecided, counts against Gary Johnson in 2016 getting to that 15%. And in the history of modern polling, the Republican and Democrat have never polled under 40%. So let's just say that it's 40-40. So now you've got a 20% thing to work with. Gary Johnson's got to get 15% of that. And everybody who says, I'm going to wait to listen to the debate to decide who I'm going to vote for counts against him getting in. It's really a stacked debt. But he got close. He got up to 13%. So in 2020, when Joe Jorgensen ran, the question they asked is, if the election were today, who would you vote for, Joe Biden or Donald Trump? And only if somebody said Joe Jorgensen did she count on the poll. So they had to deliberately say a choice that they weren't given. Um, and so, I mean, it's really become an unfortunate thing. When I saw that in 2016, that's when I felt like I've got to do more. Uh, 2018, uh, Massachusetts needed somebody to run in a ballot race. Uh, I got lucky to have a space in my life where I could run for auditor. Uh, and as I was running, uh, one of the things I tell candidates all the time now in training, go to every parade you can, because a parade forces you to refine your statement every hundred yards. And it has to be under two minutes because you can only say it while people can hear you while you're walking. And so I was walking, you know, I'm like, my name is Dan Fishman. I'm running for auditor because blah, blah, blah. Oh, you know, the Republicans are doing this and that's a terrible idea. And you shouldn't have an auditor who's a Democrat. And finally, you know, I solidified it to why would you elect a Republican or a Democrat to audit Republicans and Democrats? My name is Dan Fishman. I'm a libertarian. You know how we like to watch the money. And that was it. And then I was on to the next group. We got to refine your messages. Uh, and so uh, I was lucky. I picked up some steam. Uh, we had a television ad that uh, was actually voted the best ad in Massachusetts that cycle. Starts off with a tight zoom on a guy's shirt and it says, uh, number one Colts fan. And then it zooms out and he puts on a referee's jersey. Then he walks out into Foxborough and he picks up a football and he says, stop the game. These balls are underinflated. And I walk out and I say, that's not right. Republicans and Democrats are playing political football with the taxpayers' money, and the auditor is supposed to be the referee, and the referee shouldn't be wearing a jersey of one of the two teams. My name is Dan Fishman. I'm the auditor, blah, 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 blah. So I, two things that happened that were really lucky. Uh, I got laid off, which was great because, uh, you know, as a software guy, I'm not worried about finding another job. But the company that I worked for had been bought twice in the last uh, 12 months. And the second company was a pre-IPO company, and they said, 
you know, Dan, you're really old and we're paying you a lot of money. So uh, how about you take the severance check? I'm like, oh, it's August. I could run full time between now and then. So that was what I did. I ran full time. Uh, And then I spoke uh, two weeks before the election, League of Women Voters in uh, Wellesley, Massachusetts. So Democrat squared. Um, I get out there and I give them my thing. You know, the auditor had incredible scandals, uh, the state police scandal, uh, the Barry scandal. I'm not going to go into them, but just huge scandals that the auditor should have known about. Um, and I'm talking about all these things and I can see the heads nodding. And at the end, a woman stands up and she's like, Dan, I love everything about you. I think you'd be an amazing auditor. But the party has told me that if I don't vote blue all the way down the ticket, that shows weakness in the Democratic Party. And that allows Donald Trump to build the wall. And I cannot have that. And people start clapping. I'm like, wow, the country is really screwed. At that point in time, uh, Nick Sarwark, who was the chair, posted that they needed uh, an executive director for the Libertarian Party. And so uh, I applied. I got the job. The job requires you live in Washington, D.C. And so that's where I am now. That's, that was a comprehensive bio. Thank you. Thank that's you. A, that, that was well, well done. Um, so... Can you, you've taken us up to the point where you are now the executive director of the Libertarian Party. Can you talk to us a little bit about your role as the executive director? And then what are some of the things that you found? What are you most proud of as, as, as so, the executive director? Yeah. A couple of things. First of all, uh, you know, I think anybody who's worked in industry, especially in modern industry, uh, when you come into a uh, an organization that's antiquated, and I think all political organizations are going to be antiquated. Uh, you can do a lot for them in terms of technology. So, just very simple things. When I came, in, I'm like, guys, we are not an email company. We're not a tech company. We're not hosting our own email anymore. As nerdy and awesome as that would like be, you know, I'm a former Solaris administrator and a software guy. We're not going to do any of that stuff. So, <clears throat> I'm proud of bringing that sort of best practice to the thing, uh, but. I'm also proud of the 50 state ballot access that we did. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. You know, we are going out and we're having to gather signatures. Uh, we are on the ballot in about 35 states before COVID hit. But we still had to hit those last 15 states. And going out and gathering signatures is very, very difficult in those situations. So we did a lot of different things. One of them was we went to the courts. Uh, we won a bunch of court cases that said, look, it's a public health issue for us to go around knocking door to door. Uh, so we did that and uh, we won some cases. Some cases we got signatures, uh, we made it happen. And then the other thing is, you know, I'm really proud of the campaign that Joe ran. And obviously she's the candidate. I was the executive director of the party and the executive director of the party is not the chair. Uh, I'm more the chief operating officer. Uh, you know, I make sure that the bills get paid, <coughs> the lights stay on, help to figure out how to implement the strategy that the chair comes up with. But, you know, Joe, Joe ran a great campaign. Uh, I mean, there was, there were some things that I wish he would have done more. Uh, You know, there was a a large contingent of people who wanted Joe to run, say, look, I am the only presidential candidate who hasn't been accused of sexual assault. Uh, And I thought that was a really strong point. Uh, Consent culture is one of the key components in libertarianism. Um, Joe felt like that was too much identity politics. She didn't want to be the woman running in for president. She wanted to be a presidential candidate. Um, but uh, we did some good stuff. For example, uh, 
Joe was in 48 states uh, at events in 48 states in the middle of COVID. How do we do that? Well, how would you do something like that? You would plan them outdoors in parks. And uh, we brought PA systems. And we said, you know, when we did it here in Washington, we're like, Joe's going to be on the mall. Uh, anybody who wants to come down, you're welcome to. We put her on a bus. They drove around uh, to all the different places. We showed people that you can do things. And I think the libertarian response to COVID, and, you know, I'll go back to it. I am, uh, you know, four shots, twi- two vaccinations, two boosts. Um, I believe in vaccines. My dad's a scientist. I believe in science. Uh, however, if you're going to say that you believe in science, you have to honestly say it is very clear that the states that had mask mandates and the states that didn't had no discernible difference in terms of infection rates. Okay. Tennessee never had a mask mandate. Tennessee is way below, and Tennessee's not a small state, right? It's got some big cities in Nashville and Memphis. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not Montana or North Dakota, where you ran, Brendan, right? Um, And Tennessee has no, Tennessee did not, it wasn't a hotbed of breakouts, right? Florida, right? Florida didn't have a worse rate than New York or Massachusetts or California. Uh, So we have to have honest conversations about that. And one of the things that's really concerned me is that it sort of became a completely political conversation about what the reaction was going to be. And the problem is, is that, uh, you know, there's a, a book out that talks about the fact that we revere democracy as, uh, you know, this most amazing thing, America's gift, even though, of course, the Greeks invented democracy. Um, but, uh, but Jefferson put it really well when he talked about the fact that democracy can be a tyrant. And de Tocqueville talks about it in Democracy in America, where he says, you know, tyranny of the majority is still tyranny. Uh, you know, there's a famous uh, shirt that democracy has to be more than two wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner. And, you know, here I am as representing, and, and you know, even before I got involved in politics, I'm just a weird dude, right? Uh, I mean, I played lacrosse in high school, but also Dungeons and Dragons. I love for musical theater, but I'm a huge football fan. I'm like, I'm all over the place. The one thing that is constant in me is that if you tell me I can't do something, I'm going to fight it. Okay. Unless it's like, I don't want to hurt anybody, but I want the freedom to explore and express my life. And when government constrains that for no reason, that's where I start to really get unhappy. And like, you know, cannabis is a great example. I'm not a, uh, I'm not a large partaker of cannabis. I certainly wasn't, you know, I was an athlete in high school and college uh, and I never drank and never smoked anything like that. Uh, then later on, you know, started smoking cigarettes. Do I regret it? Yes, I do. Kids don't smoke. Would I make a law saying you can't buy cigarettes? No, that's crazy. Um, because, you know, God, they look so cool. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, all those things, they, what do I want out of life? What is the, the value of your life? There's a, a libertarian uh, catchphrase that, you know what? If you want a system with universal health care, where you are guaranteed safety, uh, where all your meals are going to be provided for you, we have that in our system. And it's called prison. Prison has all those things. But if you want a system where there's risk, risk to your life, 
risk to your prosperity, but you are allowed to do the things that you want, you have to give liberty its head. And so that's where, you know, I have come in and started to be more involved in it. So the, the long way to answer your question. The thing that I'm most proud of uh, is that we got Joe Jorgensen out there in all the states. Uh, she didn't get in any of the debates. Uh, you know, she got very little media time uh, because there was really a you don't want to ruin this election by having a third party candidate on the air. Uh, and a lot of that happened, right? A lot of people were very unhappy about Gary Johnson in 2016. They feel like, uh, you know, Gary Johnson uh, made Trump win or Gary Johnson, you know, made me change my long distance company or whatever, all <laughs> these things that they blamed on him. Uh, and in reality, you know, Gary got four and a half percent of the vote. Uh, those are people who, got the chance to express the sort of country that they like. I don't think we ever want to see that go away. And unfortunately, the problem that we have is that the two major parties are committed to dividing us. And we just saw this. Uh, so we'd talk a little modern politics. Okay. The Michigan primary results just came in. Okay. There is not going to be a black person elected from Detroit because of the way they did redistricting. Okay. And that's actually the Democrats in charge of it. Okay, why did they do that? Because they didn't want to have the suburbs be uh, potentially swing votes. So they carved up inner city Detroit, which is solid Democrat, and put it with the suburbs so that now these are safe Democratic districts. But what it means is that no black person is going to be elected. That's terrible. That is terrible. That is the party acting in the benefit of its business. What is the party's business? party is a corporation. It sells elections. That's all they do. And you can look at the positions they flip-flopped on, right? I mean, think about, think about the filibuster, right? Has any party actively stood up and said, you know what, even though we're in charge, we're going to really defend the filibuster? No. Everybody throws out the filibuster as soon as they can. The other side's like, oh, it's the biggest threat to democracy. Blah, blah, blah. Invading Syria, right? Uh, there's a point in time where, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, there was talk about Obama going in. Uh, we were going to go to Syria because they had the chemical weapons. And the, the Republicans were like, oh, it'd be terrible. We don't want to get into a land war. Don't go into Syria, blah, blah, blah. Then when Trump's in power, Trump's like, oh, we got to go into Syria. The Democrats, complete flip-flops. There are very few things that you can point to and say they are consistent in their application of what they want. And actually, the only thing that the professional parties are consistent in is acquiring power. Uh, so I don't quote a lot of Ralph Nader, but Ralph Nader said Republicans and Democrats are competing to serve their corporate masters. I think he's right. I, I really think that what's happening is that, you know, they realize the mathematical value of it. And you look at how much money is spent in elections, right? And then how much money is in the budget to be redistributed. It's so much money that how wouldn't there be people doing everything they can to get elected to manipulate that money? So... For me, that's where, you know, as a libertarian, one of the things that I, again, am proud of is the things that we did win. Uh, we were talking about marriage equality long before anybody else. You know, it finally came to pass. We've been talking about legalizing cannabis for forever. It finally came to pass. But, you know, we didn't want cannabis to be legalized so you can go out and get high. I mean, if you do, that's totally okay. But we wanted cannabis to be legalized because we don't want families broken up because dad has a joint, right? We don't want uh, kids to grow up without a mom because 
mom is, you know, selling pot brownies to her friends or making them for her friends or anything like that. If you are <coughs> pro people, you got to let them live their lives. And the one thing that the, the, the parties seem to be interested in is accumulating power. I think that's uh, actually a great transition because we, we definitely were interested in, in sort of how you came to the Libertarian Party. And it, I mean, it sounds like that wasn't necessarily your upbringing, but you, you made your way there. I think yeah. one of the things we're also interested in, especially the way you frame a lot of uh, what libertarianism maybe sees wrong with the current state of affairs is, you know, what what would you say it prescribes for the role of government? Like, where where is that line? The... I. I you're right. So my, my upbringing was my academic upbringing. My parents were both Democrats. I was a Republican until 1984 when uh, Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson convinced me the Republican Party wasn't the place for uh, Dan Fishman. Um, but, you know, what is the proper role? I, I want nice things. So there, you know, there's a funny pie chart and it says, you know, what do libertarians hate? 20% hate Republicans. 20% hate Democrats, 20% hate Rhodes, and 40% hate other libertarians. <laughs> uh, and there's a lot of truth to that. But I want a society where we have great roads. I am a huge believer in public schools. What I don't want is a system where if I don't agree with what's happening, you get to use force against me to make me comply to go along with it. Okay. And I understand the idea of a social contract, right? Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the general will, um, those are important concepts. I just don't think that, I think there are very few things that are so important, we should authorize the government to use force to make them happen. And a lot of people are like, oh, you know, it's not really force. You know, there's, uh, sometimes at conventions we'll play a game called Libertarian uh, Family Feud. And a hundred people were asked, Taxation is blank. What's number one, Brendan? Theft. Theft. Taxation is theft is always the number one answer. But number two is the price we pay to live in a civilized society. Because nobody agrees with it, but that's what the phrase is that everybody tells you. Are taxes the price that we pay to live in a civilized society? Yeah, I actually agree with that. I, I think that there's a lot of things that you can look at that wouldn't have happened if there hadn't been somebody who collected money to do that. The question is, is it worthwhile to be to have that somebody be the federal government? And if you don't give them your money, they're going to throw you in jail. They're going to commit acts of violence against you. They're going to separate you from your family because you're like, you know what? I, I, don't, I don't got it right now. I don't, I'm not feeling the urge to spend this money on this thing. Whereas if we were to take as much as we possibly could out of the government and have those things run by independent organizations. Uh, and, you know, I, I'll give you a great example of it. Uh, government licensing, occupational fees and licensing, right? A lot of licensing that goes on is run by the government, but really it's sort of a, a conspiracy to have a barrier to entry to prevent people from being able to compete in a field. Uh, you know, there's a couple of great examples that one going on right now in Denver where uh, a woman was arrested for running a hair braiding business. All she did was braid hair with her fingers, right? No hot curls, anything like that. But in order to do that, you have to have a beautician's license. 
which in addition to having gone to a licensed beautician school, you have to have 1,500 hours of training as opposed to 800 hours to be an EMT. So why, right? Why is there that barrier to entry there? Or any number of any fields. And people are going to say, oh, Dan, if you do that, you're going to have people practicing medicine without a license. You know, I don't feel like the risk there is so enormous, right? If my options are to go to Mass General or to a closet in a alley, you know, then I get to make an informed decision. But you know what? There are people who are doing that for their medical care. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people who are finding alternative options out there. Let people make informed decisions, but don't force them to do the things that we think are morally right. Essentially, what it comes down to is, you know, look at all the decisions we've made. And if we think it's a moral decision, then we have to say, how moral is it? Is it so moral that 80% of people agree on it? Is it so moral that 60% of people agree on it? 51% of people agree on it? At what point in time do you say, these people get to use force to make the minority submit to their plan? And so that's, for me, where the libertarian plan is. I want to take away everything. I can see, a, a, I, I want a federal government that defends civil rights because that is the purpose of it. Citizenship, for me, is about having my rights. I want a government that uh, made, I, look, I don't like what we do with our armed forces, but I see the need for a national military. Um, and so a government that does that, <coughs> excuse me, I certainly would contribute to paying for that. Uh, and I can see, you know, a, a gov- I definitely want a government to maintain a justice system that keeps things equitable, okay? I mean, you're going to have a series of laws and enforcement uh, then there has to be, you know, hopefully a neutral party that does that. But I'm also aware of the fact that we're in the middle of this incredibly violent time in our society. Why are we there? It's because laws require law enforcement, and that injects force into our society. You know, you look at uh, George Floyd, okay? Why did he die? What was he doing that was so bad at the time that he had to be killed? Nothing, okay? And, and, you know, the allegations were pretty much trumped up anyway, but because we had these stupid laws, and you look at most of the shootings, right? These are places where people are stopped and stopped for stupid laws that didn't involve them being stopped, right? Four of the uh, police officers in the Breonna Taylor case were just arrested, okay? But I'm getting ready to write an article about this too, so it's fresh in my mind. Why do the police ever need to enter somebody's house if it's not an emergency? They don't. They could sit, they could wait. Honestly, we are making police officers' jobs safer. People say back the blue, back the blue by getting rid of unnecessary searches. Don't send somebody into a house where there could be somebody waiting. We can wait outside, right? I mean, we've got that. The, the, the guys are getting paid no matter what they do. Just wait until the person you want to ask comes, comes out and then you can talk to them. But no, we have this thing where we want the system to have authority so that we can do all of the other things that we think are really important. They think, oh, if we don't have law and order, if we don't have authority. You know, there's an interesting thing. People talk about anarchy, and I'm not an anarchist. Uh, I am, I'm a minarchist. Uh, it's a distinction that only libertarians care about. But, uh, uh, I, but anarchy doesn't mean what people think it means. It doesn't mean chaos. It doesn't mean uh, a system with no rules. You guys know monarchy means one king. Anarchy means no kings. It doesn't mean no rules. It means no kings. So if you can imagine a system where we had rules and we didn't have kings, 
that would actually be an implementation of an anarchist society. So that's where I am on the libertarian side of it. Uh, Edward Snowden spoke at the uh, Libertarian Convention in Reno in May, and he said, how do I define liberty? It's the freedom from asking for permission. He said, how many of you can, I don't know, build a shed in your backyard without getting permission from the government? And uh, I happen to have looked it up. Only in three states is that allowed. Other places you have to get a permit. Um, how many of you can, you know, open up a business with child of, of looking after children? Nowhere. Nowhere is that legal without a license. Um, all of these things that, you know, we have to ask for permission. And that's not the way that I think we're supposed to be. There are some things where we have to live in sufferance with each other because we inhabit the same place in the same planet. But it doesn't mean that we should have to limit our expressions of freedom just because they make some people uncomfortable. So that's, I think that's a, another perfect transition. You're really teeing me up here. Um, one of the questions that Brendan and I have talked, well, recently at length about is the government sort of response to climate change as kind of an existential societal threat. And I think, well, yeah, I guess I'm curious how, how you, or how I guess the libertarian movement might square a challenge like that, where it almost requires an infringement against personal freedoms for a greater or like, you know, for like a long-term goal. Well, uh, let me play a little uh, devil's advocate there. How do you think that it requires an infringement upon your freedoms? Uh, saying perhaps that I can't drive like a the gasoline powered car that I want, or I don't want to pay more for electricity. And so now I'm being forced to buy clean power instead of, you know, my coal, which was cheaper. Right. But that didn't really happen, right? At no point in time do we make a law that say you can't drive gas cars, right? We didn't make any laws that say you can't have coal power plants. What happened was public demand forced those people out of business. You know, th there are penalties for coal, polluting coal, making, creating pollution, okay? But you could still do that. Here's the argument that I would make that is a better thing for that. When the government is involved, government gives out licenses to do whatever the hell you want. So the best example of that that I can give is that when British Petroleum pumped, you know, what was it, 42 billion gallons of oil into the Gulf of Mexico, uh, and the, don't quote me on that 42 million number because I'm going to get it wrong because I just realized I was about to say, because the other number is that then they had this guy come in, it's a legal term, Brendan can help me out here, somebody called a special master to decide what was the limit of liability for British Petroleum. And they said, you know what, it's $42 billion. That's it. How does that make any sense? First of all, how does government do that and say, okay, well, this is what it is. We're just going to draw a magic number in the line, and that's the limit of the damages. Uh, and then secondly, how does they take away the right from other people to sue? Once that $42 billion cap was hit, nobody gets to collect any more money from British Petroleum for that. The government generally is selling licenses to pollute. And it goes out, they go out to the people that they support, the people who are politically powerful, et cetera. So, you know, if coal had as much money as oil and gas, do you think we'd see coal banned right now? Or is the problem that the coal people don't have that political power anymore? 
And so now we've seen the other things coming around. There's a lot that we can do on our own. Uh, you guys aren't old enough to remember, but there was a time back in the 70s when we were talking about the fact that fluorescent cans, uh, that spray cans, were going to make a hole in the ozone layer. We didn't have to make any laws. People talked about it. They said it's a big deal. And voluntarily, we don't use those things, those type of aerosol cans anymore, or very, very rarely. Things can be done. Do good ideas require force, right? If your idea is so awesome, right, we're going to save the planet, everything's going to go. Is it so awesome that it requires force? Or if it's such a great idea, shouldn't we be able to convince a critical mass of people to get involved, to get behind the thing? And think about, you know, recycling. Recycling started off as a really good idea. And now it's become about power, right? Uh, like, man, I was, it was lucky that I got out of Beverly when I did, because uh, it used to be that we had single stream recycling. Uh, and then they said, uh, you know, at one point in time, my recycling got rejected because I had plastic and glass in the same bin, or maybe it was plastic and newspaper. I don't know what it was. But and I essentially said to them, I'm like, look, I'm doing this to be a good citizen. I'm doing this to contribute. But if you force me to, I can put all this stuff in a black plastic bag and just throw it out as trash. Okay. I mean, meet me halfway here. And why, why wouldn't they do it? Because it's about power. It's about the power to make me do things the way they want. It's just crazy to me. Sure. All right. So I feel like we've talked or you've talked a lot about how the the liberty movement in general, li the Libertarian Party in particular, is a lot of like freedom from. Yeah. So yeah. what's what's the platform? What are some of the policies that you would say these these are the policies that are really identified with the liberty movement? So until very recently, uh, there were a bunch of things in the Libertarian Party platform that I was incredibly proud of. Uh, Platform plank 1.5, the abortion plank, said that we believe that there are people of good conscience on both sides of the abortion issue. And because there are people of good conscience on both sides, government shall make no laws to interfere and people shall follow their conscience. I was really, really proud of that. I thought that was the best statement by any political party. Um, unfortunately, the new people in charge of the Libertarian Party took that plank away. Another thing that I really, really liked was uh, in our plank on bigotry, we started off with a sentence that said, we contemn bigotry as both irrational and repugnant. I was really proud of that. I think that's a really important statement. Those are things that are critical to the idea of liberty. Unfortunately, the current Libertarian Party took that out of their platform as well. Uh, their argument is that uh, they wanted to make it more welcoming. I don't know why you want to be more. I mean, like, yeah. So uh, maybe for abortion, you can say, okay, you know what? You want to make it more welcoming for people who are pro-life uh, because that position fundamentally, it's a non-government interference position, but it's not a defend life at all cost position. But the bigotry one is just baffling to me uh, because, you know, it's one of the things that's just, it's disgusting. Right. And I wanted to be clear that that's where we should be on that. And that's something we can't be. Joe Jorgensen made an amazing statement when she was running. She said, it's not enough to not be a racist. You have to be actively anti-racist. When somebody says some racist stuff in front of you, you got to stand up and say, no, that's not OK. You can't say things like that. Uh, you know, again, then go back to Massachusetts. Uh, 
they might be giants, right? Great Massachusetts band. They've got a wonderful song I would encourage everybody to listen to called You and Your Racist Friend. Uh, and they talk about the fact that, you know, the problem is that a lot of us are sitting around being quiet when people say stuff, right? I mean, who, who just marched in Boston? Was it was it Nazis, Proud Boys? Uh, no. It's like the national... Uh... People's Front of Judea, whatever it was, right? Yeah. One of those, one of those groups. Um, I apologize to the People's Front of Judea for slandering them, but, but that sort of thing. It was popular. Fr- I don't know what it was, but you know, these guys are rising up right now, and the problem is, is so many of us are sitting on the sideline and being silent about that because we're like, oh, you know what? It's not my liberty that they're threatening, but uh, Dr. King had it right. Right. A battle against injustice anywhere is a battle for justice everywhere. And that's where we have to be. And that's that's the point of the liberty movement. And uh, again, to quote Dr. King again, you know, uh, he said when those kids were sitting down at lunch counters throughout the South, they were in reality standing up for what is best in the American ideal. Right. The idea that we are in this together. The American experiment is no more kings, no more princes, citizens all of us together entitled with separate rights and a matter of respect for each other. And that level of respect has to trump our desire. uh, Let me choose a different word has to override our desire to make the world the best that we can be because the world that's the best that I want to make it is not going to be the same for everybody else. We shouldn't have required magic, the gathering classes in third through sixth grade, Um, things like that. And and, that's a trivial example, but, it's only trivial because it's something that matters to me. We can talk to, talk to other things about other people and somebody is going to feel oppressed at some point in time by somebody else trying to impose their will on them. So let's avoid that whenever we can. Sure. I, I want to transition into like the two-party system as it exists. And you've touched on a bunch of the issues with the two-party system, but you've kind of alluded to it throughout your remarks tonight where the difference between the liberty movement writ large and the libertarian libertarian party in particular. And one of the the questions that I had wanted to kind of get at with you throughout this conversation is like, do we see the libertarian libertarian party as a potential third party? I want to talk about third parties in general, but like, I guess I'd be remiss without pressing you on it a little bit. Where do you see, you know, if, if, if our hope for the third, the third party system was libertarian party and you're already, we're already splintering the libertarian party. Like that's not a great hope. Well, are you ready for me to spill all the tea? Uh, Because uh, so two weeks ago, uh, I sat down to dinner with Andrew Yang. And, uh, you know, we talked about the forward party. I actually spoken to him several times in the past. Uh, And unfortunately, uh, he convinced me that the forward party doesn't understand what's involved in running actually a campaign uh, and it's more of a vanity project that they're involved in. And I was really disappointed to learn that because I really liked Andrew Yang's uh, candidacy. Uh, I liked, uh, he debated Jeffrey Myron, who is a libertarian head of economics at Harvard. Uh, and it was a great debate. Uh, you know, Andrew Yang supports universal basic income, but he supports it based on Murray Rothbard's plan. Murray Rothbard, famous libertarian economist. Uh, his plan essentially is like, look, we have a system where people get welfare right now. The, pro- the worst thing about the system is that there's 8 million agencies involved in it. 
let's just cut people one check and get rid of all the agencies. You know what? That, that's a UBI that some libertarians can get behind. It's a reasonable thing. But unfortunately, I don't see him having the understanding of what's involved in the coalition building to get, in fit, get on the ballot in 50 states. Libertarians are there through blood, sweat, and tears. In the history of the country, uh, only the libertarians and Republicans and Democrats have had 50-state ballot access in consecutive presidential elections. The Greens have never had 50-state ballot access. And you'd have to say, oh, well, they're the next level of presidential candidate. They've never done it. Ross Perot did it once with the Reform Party, and the second time he did it as an independent because the Reform Party fell apart. It fell apart a little bit because it got sabotaged by Republicans, but that's another episode. (laughs) Um, So there does need to be a third party. Uh, The Libertarian Party, you know, the one thing that Republicans and Democrats agree upon really strongly is that they don't want to share power. Okay, and so they've set up a system where moderate Republicans and modern Democrats like you guys are feeling ostracized by the party. Right. There's no way, Brendan, that uh, Republicans want you to run for office because you're too moderate. And, and Ricky, you know what? If, if you're a guy who says, you know what, maybe government shouldn't spend money on this. You're out. You cannot serve in the Democratic Party anymore. And why are they doing that? Why are they redistricting? If you look at the way redistricting work, right, instead of making, you know, solid districts that they could all win, but were like, you know, 60-40 red or 60-40 blue, they said, no, let's give the blues one district and make the other ones, you know, 70-30 or 80-20, where there's no chance of a moderate getting elected. They're doing that because they're consolidating power. And the problem is, is that we have set up a system that rewards doing that. So how do we fix it? Um, third, I, I, I'm going to keep fighting for a liberty candidate, but one of the things that we do with People for Liberty is to say, you know what? There are liberty candidates in every party. Uh, and, you know, I may not agree with Tulsi Gabbard on everything. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, her LGBT stance, that she has recanted it from where she was, uh, you know, 10 years ago, but that's still troubling to me, some of the things that she said. On the other hand, as an anti-war candidate, she's fantastic. So I want to work with her on that. Uh, you know, Rand Paul, right? Rand Paul, uh, Rand Paul is, is a pro-life guy. Uh, he believes that that is the purpose of government. I, I disagree on that. On the other hand, in terms of fundamental protections of people's privacy, limitations on the power of the government, like, I mean, a lot of people don't remember what his filibuster was about. They just remember his filibuster. His, his big filibuster was saying, you know what? We need a statement here saying that the government cannot use drone strikes inside the United States. That is not an unreasonable position. I am happy to say, you know what? I support Rand Paul on that. My model, my model for this, <coughs> Frederick Douglass, right? Frederick Douglass said, I will work for good with anybody who wants to work for me, and I will not work for evil with anybody who's working for evil. And that's it. It's about the task. And so there are people who are promoting liberty. Uh, there are candidates like, I mean, there are times that uh, libertarians have refused to work with Democrats who were against legalizing other drugs besides uh, cannabis. That's silly. I mean, I think now the tide is turning, right? We see the difference that uh, psilocybin and MDA are making, especially for veterans. Um, We see a lot of 
uh, you know, benefit to those sort of things. But we libertarians were too pure. Uh, we, we spent a lot of times having purity arguments and turning down people because of that. So I think that there's a place for libertarians to run, but I think that the liberty movement needs to understand that the Libertarian Party has, in some respects, and I say this as, <coughs> excuse me, as a candidate myself, um, <clears throat> been more focused on a complete absolutism as opposed to understanding what is better. Now, I mean, I will go back and, you know, the race that uh, people complain about the most with me when I uh, knocked Richard to say out, if you believe that's what that four and a half percent did. Look, I was... I was much further to the right fiscally than Richard to say uh, he was, you know, he was a Massachusetts. I wouldn't, wouldn't even say he was a Massachusetts Republican. Uh, he was more comfortable with government spending than I was ever going to be. I had to run against that and I would do it again. But uh, I do understand the idea that especially when they're in office, we should be able to support the people who are advocating for a freer society, empowering people by depowering government. Sure, that, that makes a lot of sense. And it's quite honestly, it's, it's inspiring to listen to, uh, to say, you know, to quote Frederick Douglass and to, to say that we should work with Tulsi and work with Rand. But if we also agree that the two party system is broken, the people that you're saying are within the two party system while they're on the outskirts of that system. I guess my question for you is like, how do we, how do we get a third party going? And while I understand that Yang and his compatriots might not have uh, a, a plan in place, like they have something. Yeah. I mean, maybe, may, maybe they would get there. I mean, the libertarian party has something, uh, you know, and I mean, if you think about, I mean, you think about where Gary Johnson was and there's, you know, the original plan was that Bill Weld was going to be the 2020 libertarian presidential candidate. Um, he was persuaded. Uh, he had come to believe that the greatest harm that happened to the country was that could happen to the country was Donald Trump being reelected. Uh, and he, uh, you know, some very smart people said, you know, if you don't want the incumbent to be reelected, you have to primary them from within their own party. If you look at the last nine incumbents to, to run, uh, if the five, the four who were primaried from within their own party all lost. And so he became convinced that the best thing he could do to make Donald Trump lose was not run as a libertarian, but to primary him. And so we lost who I, what I think would have been a great candidate. Uh, I think, you know, he would have carried on behind where uh, Gary was. He had the reputation. He would have gotten the press. And, you know, it was an election where people were really desperate for anybody else. And although Joe Jorgensen, you know, her numbers were, Joe Jorgensen did better than Gary Johnson did in his first run. She raised more money. She got more votes. But she didn't have the name recognition that Bill Weld would have had in that scenario. I think that the Libertarian Party could do it again, except that I think that the decisions that they've made in terms of leadership right now are really going to be, they're going to be the proud boy party. Uh, and that is unfortunate. Uh, they're going to be the, uh, right, the uh, straight pride parade party. Uh, and that is unfortunate. Those are just politically dumb decisions. And, and in my opinion, personally reprehensible as well. Uh, it's one thing to say that, Somebody has the right to do that, but it's another thing to say, oh, yeah, I have the right to be an asshole, and if I don't use it, people are going to take it away from me. You know what? You can always be an asshole. Do it on your own time.
fair enough. Uh, so where do you stand right now? Are you more in the the camp, I guess, and I'm just like curious on a personal level, not speaking for your executive director position. Are you more in the camp? Like, I want to influence people with my ideas. I want more people to have more like liberty movement ideas. Or are you serious about trying to run like third party candidates? Uh, so I, so our 501c4 is engaged in a lot of advocacy, political advocacy, and that's 501c4 is allowed to do political advocacy. 501c3 is not. 501c3 is all about education. Um, one of the things we're doing, uh, and people can go to the people for number four liberty.org and look at the legislation page. One of the things that we're doing is we have a list of all the legislation, and I'm not going to say it's complete, but we're trying to make it complete. All the legislation in state houses that impact liberty one way or the other. Uh, you know, like Massachusetts famously banned uh, smoking in public parks recently. You know, I, I'm a guy, I, I talked about the fact I wish I never started smoking, all that stuff. But a public park is a public park. It's not for, uh, you know, think of all the other things that used to be illegal to do in public parks, right? People couldn't pick, couldn't kiss in public parks. Uh, mixed couples couldn't hold hands in public parks. Uh, we have a tradition of saying, oh, we want the public park to only have, you know, the most pristine. It's a, it's a public park. That's what it's supposed to be. So in terms of, uh, I lost my thread a little bit here. Uh, Remind me again what we were saying. Oh, yeah. Like I, I was, what are you looking for? What are you trying to do right now? So, so, so we have that thing going with the 501c3. But one of the things that we're really focused on right now is sort of understanding the liberty movement and how we have changed as a country. Now, I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember this phrase, but we used to say all the time when I was a kid growing up, I may not agree with what you have to say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. And I see you guys nodding along. Right. Can you imagine a Republican or a Democrat saying that today? No, it's terrible. What happened? That used to be the core of what we were. We were a country, you know, uh, quote Lincoln, right? Conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. I would have said people, but that all people are created equal. So in that space, where did we lose that thread? Where did we lose the thing that really made, and that for me, that's what American exceptionalism is, okay? I, I really don't like it a lot of times when I hear people talk, oh, American exceptionalism, blah, 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 right? American exceptionalism is built on the fact that we have a country that everybody who was awesome and smart came to, okay? That's the thing that's exceptional about America. We, people came here because there was freedom here and we're letting that go away. So how do we fix that? Where do we... Uh, Get around that, we have to find the commonality of what is liberty. And so one of the things that we're doing at People for Liberty, uh, we don't have a name for this project yet, but we're getting together real data scientists and we're building a real quiz survey that helps us to understand where people are on liberty. And I'll give you a couple small examples. So uh, Pew does a poll on this, consistently returns 65% of Americans are libertarian in at least one issue. And (laughs) I I agree with that. It's generally in my conversations, it's rare for that I find somebody who's really, oh no, I really want the government to tell me what to do all the time. So instead, what we want to do is we want to find those 65% of Americans. We want to find out what their number one liberty issue is. And then we want to find what we call their adjacent liberty issue. What is your number two liberty issue? And we believe that that provides us an intellectual mapping of how to engage people in the fact that all of the liberty issues are actually one. 
people don't really see that a lot. A lot of times they see their one narrow liberty issue. Uh, and the best example of that, so we did, these are some early numbers and I'm probably not supposed to talk about them, but since I'm spilling all the tea, um, we know that if your number one liberty issue is cannabis, your number two issue is criminal justice reform. That's not shocking, right? Those things go hand in hand. Didn't, didn't take a survey for that. But if your number one issue is school choice and school choice is huge right now, your number two issue is occupational licensing. And when we learned that, we're like, how is that possible? But, uh, you know, fundamentally where I really am, right? I'm a computer scientist. I'm a data scientist guy. Follow the data, see what it tells you. If you are involved in homeschooling, if you're involved in school choice, at some point in time, there's something that you wanted to do, educational, and somebody told you, no, you can't do that. That person doesn't have a license to do this. That person doesn't have uh, the qualifications, whatever. So you can't have this person teach your child or whatever it is. So what we need to do and what People for Liberty is trying to do is to go to homeschooling groups and say, you know how you're having this issue with occupational licensing? That's the same issue, the same liberty issue as these guys over here are fighting for. They're actually your allies. These people who are saying, you know what? We don't need a license to be a carpenter or uh, other things about it. You know, we don't need government regulations to prevent us from working in this space. Those guys are actually on your side. You are bonded with them. There was a great example of when we're trying to pair to get... <laughs> people together and that is our name is deliberately chosen we are people for liberty we want to get people together working toward the same thing so uh recently in memphis uh there was a group there was a, a company that was trying to build a uh pipeline through the poorest part of the city the uh local civic leaders got together and they protested and libertarians are like hey, they're going to seize the land with eminent domain. We hate eminent domain. Let us come out and march with you guys. And so now you have libertarians and Black Lives Matter marching together on uh, you know, an issue that should be something that unites them. And what happened as a result of that was, so three months later, after they started to get together, the whole George Floyd thing blows up. And one of the people there said, hey, you guys know a lot about self-defense, about Second Amendment. Can you guys teach us some stuff about the Second Amendment, about gun ownership, stuff like that? That's what we want. We want that idea of adjacent liberty issues to bleed over so that people understand my freedom is your freedom. Okay. And it's, it's, it's not just, you know, my, my freedom to read the books that I want is your freedom to, you know, choose the medical care that you want. Uh, we talk about this all the time. So, you know, famously in my debate, uh, with John Tierney, I kind of spanked him on the idea that uh, he said, people have a right to health care. I'm like, you know what? That, that's a statement spoken by somebody with privilege. Okay, your health care is provided to you by a health care provider. That's somebody else's labor. We fought a war in this country that said you are not entitled to the benefits of somebody else's labor. So, sir, I would suggest you don't have a right to health care. But you know what? I, I, I've come around on that now. Not in the way that you think. Somebody said to me, you know what, Dan? People have the right to seek the health care that they want. If you believe that cannabis is the cure to your cancer, you should have the right to choose that. If you believe that, you know, whatever, you know, healing stones, whatever, whatever's the experimental treatment, you should have, nobody's obligated to provide it for you. 
Okay. You don't have the right to somebody else's service, but you should have the right to seek the care that you want, offer somebody money, cannabis, et cetera. Too many times we hear stories of <coughs> people going overseas for healthcare now because they can get the treatment that they want. It's cheaper. Uh, people who have seen Dallas Buyers Club, right? One of the greatest libertarian movies of all time. If you haven't seen it, please watch it. It's an amazing story, an amazing indictment of the fact that the federal government is incapable of moving quickly in cases of emergency. And it has drags on it because there are people who give money to the government who don't want to see things change. So here, when the AIDS epidemic broke out, right, we could have had uh, drugs coming in that made a big difference two years earlier, would have made a huge difference, didn't happen. Same thing happened with COVID, right? The tests were out. Uh, so first of all, Moderna, right? Moderna had their vaccine. The vaccine that you get, that was available January 15th, 2020, before any of the stuff broke out. But we couldn't release it because the government had to hold it up because it was, oh, we got to make sure it's safe. We got to do stuff like that. Make it available to people. Let them make an informed decision. So you know what? Maybe it's risky, but uh, you know what? I'm 80 years old. And uh, you know I live in an apartment building with 30 uh, other people. I'm in the elevator. Uh, if this thing is a vaccine and, you know, these guys say that it's work and they're smart guys. Yeah, I, I'm willing to try it. Uh, in fact, I, I, you know, that was that was before New York, before the New York outbreak. They had the vaccine and we had tests out available, but the government didn't want testing to be available to the public because they wanted a test result where the CDC would see all the results. Uh, they didn't want people testing at home, finding out they were positive, staying at home and not having an accurate count. Look, I'm a data guy. I get the importance of those numbers. But the fact that you would restrict people from having access to testing early on in the crisis, that's ridiculous. So, uh, you know, I, the more you can give people the options to run their own lives, the better things are going to be. And that shouldn't be a political thing. And so that's what I'm working for right now, is that this idea of us being bonded together, and I really believe this. I mean, this is, you know, I, I, I talk about this a lot. Like when I came down, I took the executive director job. Man, I was happy in Boston. I had a great group of friends, amazing sports teams that I missed desperately. And uh, I gave it all up because I really do feel like I have a debt to this country. You know, I've said it before, I'm a weird guy. I would be in jail if I'd been born in China or maybe even France, right? It's just not in me to do the things that people want me to do. Um, but I wasn't, I was born here and I was born with this amazing gift and birthright of freedom. And so I want to do what I can to make sure that other people like me are going to be able to take advantage of that and live free lives. That is legit inspiring. <laughs> All right. So I think we, we want to wrap it there because that's just a beautiful note to end on. If people are similarly inspired or at least intrigued by things that you have said today, where could people either follow you or get on board with the People for Liberty movement? So People for Liberty, people4liberty.org. Uh, we have just launched. So I, I got a deal for your podcast members. Our 501c3 has just launched uh, homeforliberty.org. Uh, and it's meant to be a digital platform with no censorship, okay? We have a bunch of groups, things like that, but what places where you can get in and actually talk about stuff. And I can tell you that, uh, so we just had a 
huge thing where Joe Jorgensen posted, made a post, and she talked about the fact that in spite of inflation, in spite of all these things, uh, congressional staffers got a 28% raise. Now, we got flagged. Fact checkers have indicated this is not false. This is not true. We responded to them, and actually Joe posted this. He's like, actually, we got this stat from your website, factcheckers.org. So why are you flagging it? It's not that. No response. <laughs> but things like that are happening. There are banners being put on stuff that are clearly, uh, they're just political. And the problem is that it's mostly AI doing that. Uh, and you know they're going to make that mistakes. And I don't want to throw my fellow programmers under the bus, but AI is not ready for that yet. It can do okay, but it's not great. But so, so we've started another platform, homeforliberty.org. Go and sign up for a premium membership, which is normally $12 a month. And if you use the code IAMHOME, all capital letters, and that's just for the listeners of this podcast, um, you'll get a free six months. So a $75 value. So go try it out. Tell us how much it's terrible it is. And then just cancel your membership within six months. And nobody's the worst for it. But one of the things that we're going to do about that we're going to have in there as part of the platform is we've got a lot of Liberty courses. Uh, so uh, Joe Jorgensen, you know, is a professor of psychology. She teaches a class at Clemson called autonomy. And uh, there's a tremendous amount of data. I want to ruin her class, but shows that the more autonomy in your life, the happier you are. And there's like some simple experiments where, uh, you know, they have animals and if they give them a food choice, the animal is so much happier. The only animal that's not true for are dogs. You can put out any food, whatever, the dog's thrilled. He can't be any happier, no matter how much more fun. But other animals, if you give them a food choice, they're thrilled about it. Um, in your personal life, if you get a choice as to whether or not you wear a uniform or you get to choose your own clothes, people are happier when they get to choose their own clothes. Autonomy makes people happy. And Joe teaches this as a college class. So she's the president of our organization. Uh, and it just Joe Jorgensen is the president of People for Liberty. Judge Jim Gray is the chair. I'm the executive director. Um, so uh, we're putting her course online. Justin Amash taught a class called Libertarianism at the University of Chicago, and he had AOC and as a guest lecturer. Uh, we are negotiating with him to bring that class online. So people become members of Home for Liberty. They're going to get access to essentially, you know, the great classes on liberty issues. We have one about, you know, how to talk about legalizing cannabis because cannabis isn't still isn't legal how to talk about uh legalizing sex work which is you know a controversial issue but fundamentally if you're a liberty person uh you know there's this great thing i like to say about legalizing sex work how can it be illegal to sell something that you can give away for free that's all there is to it for me anyway so homeforliberty.org use the code i am home to sign up for a premium membership that is good for the listeners to your of your podcast and it's good till the end of august Wow. Thank you so much. I think you are the first person to ever come on and give a, a deal. Oh, actually, our, we, we do have a sponsor, but like you're the first guest to come on and, and pitch a deal to them. So that's great. I'm go, a libertarian, and I understand economics and incentives. <laughs> yeah, you absolutely do. Um, thank you, Dan. This, this, was, this was awesome. Good. I'm glad. I, I feel like I, I talked a little too much and didn't guys, give you guys a chance to get anything in. But uh, you say you're big talkers, but no, I'm just kidding. Kidding.
yeah, don't don't challenge us on that. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, you 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 fit right in, and uh, that's great. And I think we do probably have more questions, and um, maybe sometime in the future we can bring you back. I would love to come back. Uh, you know, I, I'm happy to do a topical show at some point in time. Uh, you know, I really do keep on top of uh, politics a lot, even though I'm trying to avoid it. So anytime you want me back, I'm happy to do it. Uh, I I like it when I can have rational conversations with people who aren't in the same wheelhouse as me. We appreciate that as well. Exactly. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. All right, so thanks again to Dan for his time tonight. That was... It was uh, Ricky. Ricky, I'm inspired. I, I I know I said this to him, and it wasn't just like sucking up to the guest. It's legit. It's like 9:30 here on a Thursday night. I've had work and class. I haven't even eaten dinner yet, and I'm like fired up because he was just so passionate about what he believes, in. And, and it makes sense. That's what he's devoted now the last decade of his life, at least, to doing. And it's but to me, it was just. It was, I guess it was inspiring. There's not a better word I, I have for it. What's your, like, what was your initial takeaway from the conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely refreshing in a way to talk to somebody who's in or who's like really made a life out of politics, at least for the last like 10 to 15 years or so for him. And for someone to be so frank. And then also, I, I, I definitely enjoyed his kind of consistency on positions i i'm not one that agrees with all of them but i think i think it's i think one of the things that is the most frustrating about politicians that like that we follow today is exactly what he said it's you know you praise it when somebody from your side does it and then as soon as the shoe's on the other foot all of a sudden it's a huge problem and this like rampant hypocrisy is one of the things that just makes it so difficult to follow really anybody today sure and i think just building off that one of the things as i'm reflecting on it we literally just paused the recording and got off the conversation with him like why why am i so inspired i i think it's it was the purity right that he 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 like genuinely believes passionately in all of the things that that he says uh, and that's what the liberty movement he's just purely about i want more freedom for people and i think like that that like ideologically really speaks to me. It's something that I, I believe in a lot of that. And so I think that's, that's what was so inspiring to me. But I think what I was trying to push him on was how does that like ideological purity manifest itself in a successful way with the reality? And I'm not, I'm not sure that he gave that to me. And that's what I, I kept, trying to like get a uh, maybe a better answer and what I mean better like an answer that I wanted on that is like good I believe in a lot of these things I think a lot of people probably believe in a lot of what you're saying and like you're Ricky like you're saying like maybe you don't agree with all of it but like Dan said you probably agree with some of it great but then we can we still come back like we're stuck in this system how do we translate this like these really good ideas into actionable things on the ground so, yeah, and th- this is something interesting, and he kind of alluded to the forward party as well, and and you uh, like, you can definitely correct me, because you, you're going to know a lot more about this than I will, but I really only ever hear about the Libertarian Party when it talks about the presidential ticket, and one thing about this forward party is that they're like, we're not even looking at 2024, 
we're just trying to get a, like moderate, like reasonable candidates up and down these like ordinary ballots. And when I think about something like libertarianism, I actually think about it like operating in places that the federal government, like the federal government down seems like a weird place to start for a movement that feels like it's so like built or should be built on grassroots kind of stuff. But I think it is right. I, the only re- you're saying the only time you hear about it is in the presidential election. What's a credit to them because they were able to get out in all 50 states and get some media access for Jorgensen and Johnson and Weld. But as Dan was alluding to, like he ran for Congress as a libertarian here in Massachusetts 10 years ago. He ran as an auditor uh, six years ago, uh, four years ago, I guess. Uh, and I don't know that I would have known that if I hadn't been in that space, particularly and you are someone that you were paying attention to politics, you voted in that election, you might not have known who he was too. So, I mean, that's not necessarily an indictment of the libertarian movement. I think they are actually very much a grassroots movement, but it's it's an indictment of other things in our system, whether it's money or media or other things that we don't hear about these these other candidates that are running. Yeah, no, and, and I, I guess I hear that. I guess, you know, if I'm thinking about the most successful libertarian candidate, it is like a Rand Paul who like identifies as a Republican, but tends to say that I'm, you know, basically a libertarian, right? Like I would think that there would be other places that the party might coalesce around throwing money into like smaller races that, yeah, I mean, I guess it, it is one of those things that we probably wanted that we wanted to talk about. We didn't dive too much into is like, you know, what is the purpose of a third party candidate, especially at the highest level when you're really unlikely to win? But maybe there are these other things like the auditor's race where there's like an opportunity to get in. And like, yeah, maybe why are we not seeing more of those candidates and these types of in the like the or maybe we are seeing the candidates but like how are they not winning in some of these lower races yeah he mentioned when he was doing his pitch at the end for the home for liberty he said uh he mentioned this guy justin amash have you heard of him i know that you like that you like him you've talked about him before i I don't really know too much about him but yeah yeah, he was a he was a congressman um, from Michigan that was that was in the Republican Party. But once Trump came along, he was like, this is no longer my Republican Party. I was in the Republican Party for like the more libertarian strain of it. And then he became an active libertarian, but then decided not to run again, because, look, for all the reasons that you and I have talked about, all the reasons that Dan talked about, he wasn't going to win. And But I think that's the the frustrating part is so we, we get these people that are pure in their ideology and want to make a difference but we're, we're still stuck in that system and that's where if like i said to dan at the end if we can get him back on what what, what are we trying to do like where are we just like if we all acknowledge that the system is broken how, how are we how are we going about fixing it and i mean he worked for the libertarian, libertarian party like he he went he took many more steps than most of us do that you and i have done in terms of trying to fix this system but he seemed at least a little bit disenchanted with the direction of the Libertarian Party and is now focused more on the movement, which I totally respect from an ideological perspective. But I also don't know that necessarily gets us out of the same rut that we're in. Yeah, I. it was also just curious to me that, that that's sort of the direction of like the official Libertarian Party right now. It sounds, seems like it's like trying to pick off far right Republicans from the from the right by removing. Yeah, 
um, saying that we want to be more inclusive of. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's one of the, yeah. I mean, that's, I guess like the, the, if we're looking at like a pure libertarianism is like, say whatever you want. And Dan's like, mm, actually like bigotry shouldn't be tolerated. That shouldn't just be like, say whatever. You don't just get to say whatever you want to say. I mean, you can't in America, but that shouldn't necessarily be like, come on into the libertarian party uh, because you can say whatever you want without fear of backlash. You know, uh, I don't think that's the tagline, the libertarian party necessary. The libertarian party I envision wants to go with. One of the things that, I didn't get to ask him, but what drew me to Dan back in 2018 was that he used to say that you really have to tailor your libertarian messaging to the different parties. And so where you and I talk about like disaffected Democrats or disaffected Republicans, we're generally talking about the moderates of of those parties. We think both the parties in many ways have gone towards the wings of the party, which are more extreme and you and I don't like. But he would say that, like, look, if, I, if I'm going to a, a Democratic town hall, I'm going to talk about abortion. I'm going to talk about how the government has no right to tell a woman or anybody else what to do with their body. And if I'm going to a Republican town hall, I'm going to say I'm going to talk about guns. And I'm going to talk about how the government has no right to tell you how you want to defend yourself and your family. And so just like the ability that to me, I think, is really attractive. And that maybe that's what he's returning to a little bit with this, like, liberty movement, the people for liberty in general of like, Let's just get those ideas. And that that is intriguing to me, which he did say at the end of like, I just want to connect people. Because if you start to do that, maybe it's not an official third party. But if you and I can connect that we both agree on that, that the government should stay out of abortion and they should stay out of guns. And I'm not saying that we necessarily do, but say that we did. Now, maybe we're going to start to work together and door knock for a candidate, fundraise, contribute to a candidate that also believes those things. And that maybe they don't have to have the mantle of libertarian or whatever, but if they believe those things, that's generally good for the country. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think I would even come at it at a, at a slightly different tax, more so just from the things that I'm interested in. I think the libertarian party offers a lot in terms of, from a foreign policy perspective, less interventionist, you know, he mentioned Tulsi Gabbard, um, who, yeah, was was running for president as a Democrat, um, but also like vehemently anti-war and a former, uh, actually don't know which branch of the armed services she was, but she served. Um, I think I think that was interesting. I think one of the things that he brought up his like and one of his like initial forays into the movement was after um uh, he, uh, I forget exactly what he referenced the the move by Obama to basically basically say that like we can keep Guantanamo and we can keep sending people there indefinitely, including American citizens, right. without really ha- putting them on trial for anything. Which like obviously I was hugely against, including like you know, and he talked about specifically talked about you know laws against using drones within within the United States borders. I would extend that to like, we've used drones on American citizens in foreign countries that we're not at war with, which like, I think is crazy. We haven't talked about what just happened in Afghanistan, but I would probably like to at some point, but like, there's a lot there for people like me who, if I, if I look at the current democratic party, I fit in with them very well on a lot of social issues. I don't really, I, I hate most of the foreign policy stuff and I really just can't get on board with a lot. Like I, I agree on the issues and not on a lot of the solutions. 
and this is offering like another avenue, which which I think is I think is interesting. And like you said, it's like it's it's just important to that people be able to like vote their conscience. And what we have is a system right now that like really does not reward that. It doesn't even reward like candidates within parties differentiating themselves, which is I think another interesting like quagmire. Yeah, I mean that's what happened with Mush. Um, but that the, what you just said about the foreign policy brings back memories of when we had Captain Colin Murphy on to talk about <laughs> the withdrawal from Afghanistan and his experience serving in the Marines in Afghanistan. And he, at the end of it, seemingly out of the blue, he was like, "This is why everyone should be a libertarian." Yeah, exactly. But look, that you and Colin might not agree on a whole lot, but you might agree on we shouldn't be messing with things over in the Middle East. We would. Look, so I mean, that's, I think that was one of my main takeaways from Dan's point of just connecting people with those different ideologies and, and seeing if we can find some candidates that are palatable. To yeah. Both of us. And so, I mean, I, I guess I just had another thought, like, you know, you asked him kind of, what is the point? Is the point to get libertarians elected or to like put forth more libertarian ideas that people then kind of espouse? And I think one of the things that was cool about the way that he talked about it is that there's stuff in here that should appeal to Democrats and Republicans. And so you, you think that potentially there are like consensuses across parties in terms of like moving legislation without actually getting specific. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. No, that, that, that's a really good point. And I, that would be ultimately the goal. Again, we're still stuck coming back to this system that just seems intractable at this moment. And again, that was my biggest, like, tell me, maybe he doesn't have the answers. I don't, he shouldn't necessarily, but it's like, all right, I agree with that. How, how does that happen in practice? But I, I do think that would be the goal to what you said of like, we don't just have these like middle of the road, Susan Collins and Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema and Lisa Murkowski who like might occasionally go across the aisle, but like it's, it'd be more like, all right, we share these beliefs because we share these beliefs, we can work to get more things done. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it is, I guess I, I guess I'm perhaps supported a little more than I thought, because right now the only things that, you know, typically gets full support in Congress is additional military spending and uh, <laughs> hopeful that, that we can build some coalitions that, that think otherwise or think in a different direction moving forward. Yeah. And I think for me, you and I sometimes maybe pat ourselves on the back. And I guess I shouldn't speak for you, but I'm like, well, look, at least I'm having these discussions, which I'm proud of having them. But to see how Dan in particular decided that like, look, I feel so lucky to be in this country and I feel lucky that I'm in a position to be able to, to do more that he kind of threw himself into like actually an actual movement to, to try to like live out his beliefs. And I think maybe that maybe on a basic level, it's just, to find a third candidate and to educate yourself about a third candidate, it takes extra effort and extra work to do, but maybe at the minimum, that's something that I could be doing better and perhaps, perhaps more. So that's all he left me with. Please with that. I think that's, that's the right spot. We'll leave it there. All right. Well, that was fun. That really was. Um, but Hopefully, until next time with Dan and until next time with you, Ricky. (laughs) Indeed. See ya. 
We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head, and folks of different minds Because even though it did not share Painters we share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than a rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten Values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, some morning let your ego bruise. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we didn't share opinions, we share loud American ideals. Friends made over arguments. In an early morning bus I need an early morning bus There's hope behind the bluster Cause the old main street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics It's time to find a better way to disagree Some days you win, some days will leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for hope I used to find and chase the lion's head. Folks of different minds, because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. What I wouldn't give for. The hope I used to find in a case of lion's head Folks are different minds Because though we did not share opinions We share that American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz